Welcome to the Texans! And again, Watson escapes. Over the middle, it's cut. Akins and the tight end rumbles in for the touchdown. Here's Watson now. Blockers in front. Lowers the shoulder and in. And welcome to another episode of the Turn Up For What podcast, talking your Houston Texans straight from the Great British Isles after a visit to a blustery Cleveland where a game was delayed 37 minutes due to whether the Texans return home 2-7 and seven, when it felt like a running game absent on both sides of the ball. Uh, there was a sense of doom right from the start, but try and work this one through again this week. We'll do our best. Uh, making his first appearance on the Turn Up For What podcast is Radio 610 and Radio.com and the host of the B-Block podcast, Brandon Scott. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good, man. It's It's been a rough season for the Texans and to follow the Texans, but glad to do what I do and, you know, finding ways each and every week to to make some fun out of it. And so I'm doing pretty good, man. I appreciate you for having me. No, thanks for the, thanks for the time. I think it's... It's an odd one, I think, and it makes doing things like this, and I'm sure being in the media and press conferences with the, you know, with the, the coaches and the players, kind of difficult because you've, it feels like it's the same theme pretty much every week. Yeah, it's funny that you even mentioned that because, you know, just the day before we're recording this, we had Romeo Cornell on, and even post game on Sunday after the Browns game, you know, I'm in the post game Zoom and. I'm regularly asking questions to the players and the coaches. And, you know, it's not a odd thing for me to do, but I found myself honestly after the game on Sunday and even Monday after having some time to sleep on it and let it marinate, I didn't really have much to say much to, or as, as far as asking questions, because it was a lot of the same old, same old issues that we've already addressed and already talked about. And I got this thing about not asking questions just for the sake of asking questions. You know, unless for some reason you find out you're the only person in the press conference and you have to ask the questions. But, you know, I, I, I found myself in, in kind of that headspace where it's like, well, I don't even really know what else to say because we've talked about gap discipline. We've talked about, you know, the issues along the offensive line and the inability to run the ball. You know, there were some interesting things about the game that we could have touched on and that, you know, other media members have touched on. But it was just it just felt like the same old, same old where I didn't feel like asking the same old questions again. So, Yeah, and I, I remember you asking the press conference, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I remember you asked O'Brien a question about, did you feel like you addressed all the needs you needed to in the offseason on defense? Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you remember that, but it I stuck do. out. It's, it's one of the most, partly because I think when somebody asks a question that you're thinking yourself, it kind of sticks with you. And I was thinking that, and it seemed blatantly obvious all off season that we just didn't address needs and actually got worse and, and actually paid some players to get worse. Um, yeah. But, yeah. but I, I remember when he answered that question to you, I don't even think he convinced himself of the answer. And one of his answers was we, we've got a bit of versatility at linebacker, which is, you know, with secondary is probably our weakest spot on this depth chart at the minute. And it just feels every week, like you're saying it, it was all, it was all coming crashing down you maybe just didn't want to see it in some instances and the other instances that it was coming, there's just nothing you could do about it. And it feels like it's all kind of, you know, showing its head in different guises, but predominantly around the run game and the defense every week. Yeah. And just thinking back, I do remember that. 
And just thinking back to it, man, Bill O'Brien's got to be the first coach to make me loathe the term versatility. You know, um, normally when you hear someone talk about guys being versatile or wanting to have versatile players on their team, whatever sport it is, you're like, oh, yeah, versatility. Or almost in anything, period, that you can think of. Versatility is great. But, you know, the issue here was, you know, they've got guys that they think are versatile but and can maybe can do a number of things, but don't do any of those things necessarily at a high level. They're just almost versatile for the sake of being versatile, but they don't really add value to your football team. You know, Eric Murray may be a versatile player. He may be a guy that you can put at safety and maybe, I, I guess, you know, put him at corner and do all these different things with him, but he's not that good at any of it. You know, Lonnie Johnson Jr. is a guy now who, and I imagine we might get into some of this at some point, but he's a guy now who's played cornerback, who's drafted as a cornerback, now plays safety, presumably in a pinch, can play either now in in, in the framework in which they have him now, but isn't necessarily that good at either, you know? And so, you know, you think about the versatile guys on the team and you're just like, I, I mean, if you got to give me a guy that does one thing, but he does it really, really well, give me that. You know, um, I, I do remember thinking that in, in the moment when he answered that question. And and as far as the defense goes, I mean, I, I asked that question for a clear reason, right? Like you don't, it's almost like in in a lawyer in court, you don't you don't necessarily ask a, que- a question that you either don't know the answer to or have an idea, at least in this in this context. And I, I knew the answer to that question. You know, I, I, I just needed him to answer for it in the moment. And, you know, what could he say? You know, what, what could he say? I mean, it was kind of obvious, you know, and it's all sort of proving itself out on the field halfway into the season, over halfway yeah. into the season now. Yeah, and it's, it's an odd take on versatility. And I think you just bring up such a great point there that's, it's layered in so many ways, you know, it's layered, you know, that was the that was the other BS that we got fed, wasn't it? Layers of, yeah, you know, yeah, buzzwords layers. in there, man, buzzwords. And, uh, <laughs> and you know where those come from. We'll come on to that guy as well soon. Um, but the, the versatility aspect of it, you've got players who both in two of our most troubled spots, one offensive line, who, pl- who guys are just not playing up to their draft slate or their compensation or just, actually the ability that we all know they have and they've put out on film they've just not done that this season or if they've just not done it on a regular basis and that's on the offensive line and that's been somewhere we've talked about versatility and like you said in the secondary another spot which is a disaster for this team this year again around versatility and you get to the situation where we've got guys who you know are the masters of none but a jack of all trades you know and it's just it's it's it's, you know, we just want fundamental football players. And th- and that's what every team wants, okay? And I don't think, you know, they've ever tried to not do that. But then what really bugs me about that at the same time, when you flip it on its head to the special teams aspect of this roster, there is guys who are not versatile. Buddy Howell has been on this team for three years and apparently can't carry the football five ga- you know for five runs in a game just to mix it up, you know, some of your tendencies. You know, you've got, guy, okay, a guy like Michael Thomas, who's a special team player, shouldn't be on the field in defence, but is... Um, you know, when you think, you know, of guys that we've paid in the past and, and 
you know, bigger contracts where actually you could just get some of the, that level of talent or that level of contribution as a late round draft pick. You might hold them for two to three years and you find another one. But yet we've got these guys in and we've paid them good money. Um, and that's right across special teams, whether that be kicker, punter, uh, gunner, you know, all these kind of give have brought in guys and give them sort of two million dollars a year. And they're not really worth it when you could get somebody on, you know, the rookie minimum of a six round pick. And it's if you know, I, I, and look, it's obvious, right? You know, there was there was never a great plan at foot, and we're now seeing the the end of that as we go seven and or two and seven, rather. I wish it was seven and two. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned special teams with you know DeAndre Carter reportedly has been released, and I, I you know I think about you know special teams and and some of the guys that you mentioned like michael thomas playing and all of that that you mentioned all of that is just so curious buddy how you mentioned can't carry the football you know they, they got duke johnson out there against the browns on sunday and you know obviously we know the circumstances there why he's the starting back it, he, for a lot of people, and I, myself included, should have been the starting back a while ago. That you know, once David Johnson, after a few weeks, showed you that there wasn't a lot of pop there, I think they should have at least experimented with that and done more with that. But we knew he was going to take the bulk of the carries. How it is that you can bring up CJ Procise from the practice squad and you know already have Buddy Howe on the roster, on the active roster? And neither of these guys can get carries. I'm not necessarily clamoring for them to get carries per se. I'm just saying the fact that you don't have the confidence in these guys when you're giving the bulk of the carries to someone who does not carry. He's not a, a bell cow, has not been at least in his career, in his NFL career. And you can't get carries for either one of these two guys. To me, it, it says a lot either about those players about your player evaluation, your coaching, it 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 says nothing good about anything, you know, to to not be able to rely on those guys, and it, you know, or, or to feel like you can at least, and so I know that's got to be frustrating for fans to think, man, this is what, this is what the running game is. They can't block, nor do they have more than one guy, outside of a guy who's been a career backup that they feel confident handing the ball off to even their starter who went out, you know? Um, so it's, it's just, it's, it is difficult to wrap your head around the DeAndre Carter thing. I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago during the bye week we had, you know, so during the bye week they bring in the position coaches and yeah. we, we get to talk to them for a little while, a little short, you know, rapid fire deal with the position coaches. And, you know, I asked um, Smith, um, Carl Smith's son, Tracy, sometimes I was blanking on his first name, Tracy Smith, the new special teams coordinator. Uh, you know, what, why can't you get Kiki QT out there, you know, without saying as much, you know, cause you don't want to be disrespectful and, you know, they let yeah. you in the press conference, but without saying as much, I'm like, DeAndre Carter's not a playmaker, you know, with respect to the guy, I love his story, you know, from, from all accounts, hell of a guy, but not a playmaker. This is football, not a playmaker. Why not get Kiki QT out there? And you know the he gave me the spill about how you know he drops the ball and you know doesn't have a lot of experience of fielding it. But it's like, hey man, what do you guys do at practice? This is a professional football player, and and to be clear, I've I've watched him field 
punts and kicks, albeit in practice, I, I saw it in my, with my own two eyes in training camp. It's not like it's impossible. And and Kiki QT, to be honest, and, and to be frank about it, is prone to some of the same mistakes that DeAndre Carter is. But I just think, man, you know, you can't get this guy on the field on offense and you're not really doing anything in your return game. You know, what? why not explore that? You know, and so it was refreshing, at least, to see them do that against the Browns or at least find themselves in positions where they could utilize Will Fuller and C.J. Procise in some capacity since they signed them, you know, from the practice squad and brought them up, at least not for nothing. And yeah, and and then then with the release of DeAndre Carter, I think that kind of just hammers home the point that I was making of, hey, you needed to mix it up there and. You know, that, that what you were doing was just not going to get it done. And you hope that sends a message of accountability to the players, you know, first and foremost of, you know, this guy wasn't getting it done. He's no longer here. And sure. sometimes, you know, in the O'Brien era, that was done rashly at times. You know, um, yeah. Deontay Foreman is probably a good example of that. Could have used them right about now. Um, but I, I think, you know, in, well, you know, we will be ever tainted with the Bill O'Brien legacy for the next 18 months to two years, maybe even three, depending on how, you know, astute the next front office is. But I think if you look back on that as well, that the inability of the previous regime to understand the, the requisite skill set that their scheme needed to be successful, and that goes for wide receiver, and it goes for no more than running back. You know, you think we're paying those two contracts to Duke and David Okay, David gets knocked out last week, takes a concussion, puts him on IRS. He's out for three weeks. So it must have been, you know, and you think, was it really that bad a concussion? I've seen worse than guys, you know, pre all the protocols, you know, play, you know, in the following week. So, you know, how much of that is, you know, we'll use it as an excuse to take him out out the firing line and we'll try something else. But I think when you look at the when you look at the running back position, you think Procise was on the roster when when Duke had the ankle injury after week one when he hobbled off against Kansas City. Procise didn't get any carries then. So what what was different now? The answer was nothing. We were just going to run it all with one back. In a game which the conditions dictated you needed to run the ball, and we hadn't run the ball all season. You know, and you think if you even go back to the the, the Blue and Miller days, you know, of of O'Brien and, you know, Alfred Blue completely misused. And then you think of Duke and David on this roster as well, you know, expensively acquired talent that you can't simply run the ball. You know, you think of the third round pick for a guy who was third on the depth chart. Another guy who was ironically third on the depth chart in Arizona ends up coming over and you, and you, you know, you give a gross over evaluation as it is respect to, how, you know, with respect to how running backs are valued around the league. And you think, you know, if there's anybody that comes in at running back for this team, it's got to be a rookie. You know, we can't, you know, with the salary cap dropping, we can't, you know, I mean, and I, I don't think any competent front office would, but but we can't overvalue that position anymore, particularly, you know, and how how bad we are at that position. And it's and it's uh, it's it's bad. But I think the talent's one thing with this, Brandon, but it, I wrote an article last week on the website podcasttexans.com just about the coaching as well. And the secondary overlay from the O'Brien is the coaching. And, you know, and I think, you know, you, as you said, you know, it was quite telling some of the interviews in the bye week. But I, I think the biggest issue with this coaching staff is, well, I just don't think it's very good. And, but then also, if you think about the guys who have been in the building or how many lasted through the six and so seven years of O'Brien's era, 
you know, how many guys like Anthony Midget went to Tennessee, Wes Welker left, you know, talking about Kiki there, you know, it was a big part of his, you know, selection and, and his development in year one. Yeah. You know, how many of these guys walked out to take the same job somewhere else? It wasn't career and advancement. So I think when you take all those factors of bad valuation and then just not great coaching and co- good coaches leaving to take the same position elsewhere, I think that th- those are two of the biggest contributing factors of why we just, just look hapless at times um, on the field. And Sunday was another example of that. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. Man, I, the, the, the stain and the stench of Bill O'Brien, I think, you know, firing him energized for a moment. You know, it, there was some optimism about what the future might hold now that you've done the thing that a lot of your fans have been clamoring for and what I would say objective anonymous observers even would say, this is probably what you need to do. You probably need to move on from this guy. That they did it resonated for a moment. And I think it took a while. And especially after, you know, winning a game and, you know, Romeo Cornell's dancing in the locker room and everyone, you know, doing the Macarena in the locker room and everyone's having fun for a week or two. And then you have this sobering moment and understanding and realization of what's happened to, to, to the franchise. And that, you know, the point that you that you make about the coaches that have that have gotten out of here to take the same job or even be promoted in some cases, it, it it's telling. And the ones that have stayed, the ones that are still left over and the ones that have been brought in. And you just think, yeah, this this isn't good enough. You know, it didn't look good enough on paper, you know, when you think about it. And then the play on the field has shown that, you know. So I I think that's this is just kind of where the franchise is. Um having to, you know, right some wrongs, maybe undo some things, unlearn some things, you know. I I really worry about as far as the direction of the franchise, who Cal McNair necessarily listens to. You know, I, I don't know where he gets his advice. Um I don't have a good beat on that and it 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 concerns me for the franchise and for the future of it, especially given, you know, what you have with Deshaun Watson. You know, he's only 24, 25 years old for so long. And, you know, this is for all of this is fragile. And it doesn't seem like they treated it that way. You know, it was a lot of recklessness and just simply poor coaching as well, like you mentioned, you know, uh talked about the offensive line earlier. And yeah, man, I, I it's it's just it's it is it is hard to watch because you think you look at the roster and you think, man, this isn't especially on defense, right? This is not a talented defense by any stretch. But you still think, man, could they be better than that? They could be better than this, though. This this cannot be what it is, even with the lack of talent. I don't think you can at any point underestimate. Even you know there, there will be some guys leave just because the salary cap's going to drop, and there will be business decisions to be made. Hopefully, better business decisions that were made in the last eighteen months. But regardless of if you were to lose just ta- you know if talent was a you know a value you were able to evaluate talent just by a number, you know say we're playing Madden for a second or whatever, and every player's got a rate, and you always kind of see consternation of that every year, right? 
And it always makes me think, well, what's the point of even talking about it? Because it's just objective, right? And that's why people get paid because they've got to have an opinion in the league to acquire the talent. But even if this talent of this roster went down, a, a, even a mildly better coaching staff could get a better result out of this team. And look, I mean, there have been games that have been close. You know, Minnesota. The Pittsburgh one sticks out the worst, actually. And you think you've just had a you know piece one drive to get in the second half, you got a chance. And you're right, though, and it comes back to one man and one man only. And I've uh, last couple of sort of articles that I've written on podcasttexans.com I've basically you know directly addressed them to Cal in a sense that you know where is this team going and you've got a short window an even shorter window than you would have otherwise if you'd acted earlier um to address this I think and I think there's and before we get on to some of the game uh Randa there's two examples that I picked up this weekend like I don't want to put you in a difficult position but of any of them, so don't, don't worry about commenting all of them if you don't want to. But so there was an off field move where an executive, somebody who's a VP of this team, leaves unannounced midweek prior to lead up to a game mid season. And then when you've also got another executive on this team talking about a publication that they've launched, and they use the quote, and I'll paraphrasing here to a degree, but win or lose we still hit the metrics. The title of it is winning. And by my count, this team hasn't won anything worth a damn in its 18-year history. You're correct. But when you've, and when you've got the, you know, those two moves, one shows problems behind the scenes. And the second one of those shows a complete disregard for its fan base, I thought. And I thought... The the book publication and you were and I got an email this morning, you know, to invite me to the webinar if I wanted to join and listen about this book. But I just felt in the current climate of how bad this team is, to release that book either was just a you know it, it, it struck me as two things: is that somebody who's teamed themselves up for a move out of this and wants out, and it's a and it's a publicity stunt to get their name out there. Somebody's probably not been necessarily you know, in the limelight and who, are, who I've had personal dealings with and I couldn't say nicer things about on an individual level. But to to release that, I just thought, you know, for guys like me, for the guys I travel to the games every year or have done up to this year, I just felt like a slap in the face in, in terms of that because this team just hasn't won anything. I just thought it showed out of touch. And the point I make is... is Cal out of touch just because some of his staff are equally out of touch with what what the city and what people you know like myself and there's people in all sorts of countries download this podcast and listen to this with people I never thought you could you know even be a remote chance to be a Texans fan and it just felt like completely out of touch with what's going on and actually how bad this mess could well be or could become you know as we head into next year. Yeah, I think that you're speaking to something that is pretty consistent, at least over the last few years with the organization, you could say, and that's this level of tone deafness, tone deafness, you know, like to, to not have an understanding for the weight of your decisions or how your fan base might feel about a certain thing or just public perception in general, like forget even just the fans, just like I mentioned, anonymous observers, objective observers. You know, there are people who have no ax to grind. They have no dog in the fight, whatever cliche. And they're looking at 
this like, what in the hell are you guys doing? You know, you're, you're going to trade DeAndre Hopkins? Like, who advised that? Who authorized that? Where were the checks and balances? Who was the rational person to talk down whoever it was that wanted to do that? <laughs> like, you figure that that should exist somewhere in the infrastructure. And to the examples that you bring up here with the, you know, one executive being dismissed and another executive who <laughs> was in charge of that exec, you know, the person who was who essentially dismissed this one um, has a book coming out in the same days, rolling out the book in the same days in which they, they've let go a, a well-respected, you know, what, whatever there are people who have different stories and, and personal experiences on, on this matter, but overall a well-respected official across the league. Like, you know, this, this wasn't, um, you know, some, some small move, you know, and the timing of it, I, I, I mentioned this last week, uh, either on the B block podcast or I'm sure on my, on my own podcast or another, but the idea that you need a culture change at the VP of communications or, you know, whatever the exact title is, the, the idea that you need a culture change at that spot in the midst of a losing season is asinine to me. It, it, it makes, it, it makes no sense. It does not compute. What is the culture change? What is the thing that that, do, what does that do <laughs> that changes your losing culture? And when I talk about tone deafness, it's like you realize that you've won two games, right? Like you, you, you have not done anything like, like it's a, it right now it's a bad culture, you know, and, and it starts on the field right now, but from a 30, you know, 30 foot view, you're looking at it like, Hey, you know, it starts up top. You know, we see the players, we see the coaches failing. But then when you get headlines behind the scenes, oh, we're going to fire the VP of communications. You know, we're going to bring back, you know, the 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 coach, the the interim head coach who was never, ever considered to be a head coaching candidate in any conversation anywhere in the last however many years. You know, like these curious moves, like it, it really makes you wonder about just like I mentioned earlier, who's advising the decision makers and what does that look like? Because from the results that we get, it, it just cannot be good. And 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 those, the, the the timing of the examples that you mentioned with the book and the dismissal of the PR exec, it, it, only the Texans, right? This was a joke made on Twitter, right? Only the Texans could create a PR firestorm by firing or dismissing the head of their PR staff, and the and the the poetry there is fitting for what the Texans have been over the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, and I'll give a small example. I mean, I remember when I, 2019, when it all still felt, you know, that the, the good days were just around the corner. I am I messaged, you know, Amy to say, we're going to the draft. Can you help, you know, can you, can you help us out with tickets? And she did it. And I was just yeah. a random guy, you know, wasn't doing the podcast at that point. No kind of affiliation bar being a fan. Just, you know, told her, the, you know, the reasons where we're going. Some guys flying over from the UK to go and experience it. Always wanted to go to Nashville. And she did it. And it yeah. happened. And, and that was just one tiny example, right? Um, 
And look, I know I know there was some issues about you know you've got you know if you put the wrong stuff up online at training camp or whatever you got you were quickly messaged to bring it back down and and all those kind of stuff. But that's just part of the job that you know that, that whoever that person is next on on need to you know deal with as well. But I I, I just when the when a team consistently makes decisions which is just met with complete you know universal negativity across the media spectrum right across America everybody can't be wrong all the time you know and yeah. and it you know you saw players come out and you saw you know a variance of uh, of different uh, different kind of you know different people coming you know make clear that they just didn't agree with a decision that was that seemed odd and the fact that it's around culture for i don't know and and did that move link into the story that we saw broke or break out on sunday morning about you know potentially punting on the 2021 season because when i saw that brandon i was i was apoplectic you know i couldn't believe that you were seeing that and and when you reflect on it now you think that surely isn't possible from for so many reasons that you know, Cornell, and if anybody's wondering what that is, it's Cornell was going to be the coach, and Easterby would continue to oversee off-field matters. I could not believe that when I saw that come out, and I just, you know, I've never kind of, never yeah. kind of, you know, been worked up before a game starts <laughs> in that way. But I was, and I think that probably just shows you the lack of trust that anybody could feasibly have in this organization at this point when. That story's coming like that now. I, I, well, do, well, do you think they were linked, and that's just Ian Rappaport trying to basically stir up a new connection? And all the stories, you know, that got to him, that was that the link, and that's why that link's been removed. I, I don't know. You know, you never know. You know, these guys. I mean, I always think that the whole concept. You don't have it in other sports. Certainly not in, in sports that I've grown up watching in terms of insiders. Which are basically both, you know, or, or almost, you know, rubber stamped leaks. So, yeah, I, I just thought it just seemed like another slap in the face, which has been a long season, you know. Yeah. So my thought on that, I don't see a link, but I could be wrong. I'm not ruling that out, but I don't see a link there. I think what you saw with Amy, the, the PR exec, was something that was that actually happened in the building, and you know something. Something actually happened there. I think that there's some smoke and mirrors going on with that Rappaport uh, deal. Like he's of the most credible NFL reporters that's out there. So he he didn't make that up. He didn't pull that out of thin air. That came from somewhere. I am not convinced, 100% convinced that that came out of the building from someone who is actually making the decisions. I don't think that that came from any of the actual decision makers. You know, my guess is that could have even come from someone outside the building who was there or someone who's still there and has ties to someone who was let go, in which case that could be the link. You know, so I'm not that's why I'm not ruling it out. There there could yeah. be there could be someone with an axe to grind based off of what's happened over the course of the season, whether it be what happened after week four or what just happened after last week that we're talking about. But so this, this could be the ramifications of that, you know, um, someone feeding rap report, something that, that would be a little spicy and who knows, there could be something to it. Some legs to it of at least being thrown around, thrown out there. Maybe Romeo wants to do it. Who knows? We, we have not asked him that directly and, and we should. 
Yeah, and I don't think anybody asked them on Monday, did they? Because I, wa- I watched the watched it, and I think the. I mean, yeah. I mean, when it stacks up, when you think of why would you pay a search firm, and they've basically paid the search firm for exclusive exclusivity, so you can imagine that's a you know a six seven figure sum that Cal's written to Corn Ferry already, okay. And then you think, why would somebody at seventy four, who's not really a good NFL coach anyway, he's been a great defensive coordinator, five Super Bowl rings, right? But he's surely not got you know within a COVID climate. I mean, it's been admirable how a guy of that age is coming, and, and he was a, he was a calming influence. In the in the furore that was the O'Brien whirlwind of emotion and bad moves, and it was probably what was needed at the time. Now I think we, we I don't think we can forget. It's pretty much well documented that it was going to be offered to Anthony Weaver, right. um, and and it was suggested that Cronell takes it. So you know, with him in the in the wings, so it's it, that story. When when you reflect upon it, you know, the days later, you think, well, it's 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 maybe just been put out there. For a reason, but then, then I start to think: Is that part of the wider narrative now that this team just can't get out its own way? Just like O'Brien was a nutcase, you know. This is the next narrative about the team. Like, you know, we're you know, not even talked about the Browns game yet in any depth, but you know, for you, the Browns were a mess, and you know, there's always a team that's a punching bag. Are we just that until we prove people wrong now? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we this is the laughing stock of the NFL right now. I think. Partly because of the failure of this year, I think if you couple that with what's happening with DeAndre Hopkins and, you know, obviously the Hail Mary catch from Sunday that's going to go down as an all-timer, you know, with with the trade as the backdrop and the failures of the Texans subsequent the trade, you know, after the trade being the back, in the backdrop of it all, it's, it's a laughing stock. I mean... The Texans were the laughing stock on social media on sun on Sunday night, right? Like after that play happened, you know, they they've lost the Texans have to the Browns, you know, in a in a game that no one probably would have found interesting outside of Texans and Browns fans unless you had a vested interest in the game. And then this magical thing happens with DeAndre Hopkins. Absolutely, it is the laughing stock of the NFL right now. But I, I wanted to make a point about Romeo Cornell since we were on it you know and why it would not make sense just from a logical standpoint and from an optic standpoint why it would look so bad like aside from the fact from the good point that you make that he's just not has not proven himself to be a good NFL head coach over time Romeo Cornell a already a proven and established guy well as we mentioned he's 73 years he's in his 70s you know, he's coaching the NFL since the 80s, so, you know, at least for a long time. This is not a new guy. Has been, he's been on the staff the entire time. He's been there the entire time. And so it, it, it's not an issue of, hey, this guy was being developed. Hey, we just brought this guy in. None of that. Romeo Cornell is a finished product. So if you make him the head coach, you are conceding that the person that should have been your head coach has been on your staff the entire time. You know, it, 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 it's, it would not be the same as if you elevated Anthony Weaver or even Tim Kelly just to, just to throw in the discussion of a, a younger coach that you're developing, training, and perhaps wasn't ready before but is ready now. That's not what this is. That, that would make more sense if the interim was someone that you were going to promote to be the permanent guy. But in this case, 
you made him the interim because he was already established, because he's a finished product, because you needed a steady hand, not because you thought that perhaps this is the up and coming uh, blossoming head coach that you that you've been waiting for. That's not what this is. And so just the notion is flawed to begin with, because, like I said, to me, you're conceding that if you somehow think that Romeo Cornell is your next head coach, you're conceding that this guy has, who has been on your staff the entire time and, and you somehow neglected to put him in the position that he was supposed to be in, which, again, I'm, I'm rejecting the idea to begin with. But just to follow the logic there does not it does not pan out. It does not play out for me. Yeah, and it, it feeds into that again. That and it because it, like the, the future of this team and Deshaun's career right now depends upon Cal McNair's ability to pull his head out his ass and understand what a mess we're in and and how this whole thing needs. To, you know, you need to drain this swamp from top to bottom. You know, and yes. that includes every single one of those coaching staff, yes. scouts, debatable. You know, personnel exec. You know, James Litford, Matt, Matt Bazer, again, all these guys. You know, I think. If if I'm Cal, I think look, we just need to restart the whole thing, the whole damn thing, right from the top to bottom, because it, it feeds into the narrative that Cal thinks that this team's actually good, yeah. yeah, and it just needed a tweak, like you're saying about the coach, and you think that you know we we just people just want to win, and he wants to win in his heart of hearts, but I just don't think he knows how to go about it. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know I accept and appreciate that thought process from the players, like when we talk to. Deshaun, Deshaun Watson or J.J. Watt about rebuilding and how they don't want to rebuild. You know, just I think it was J.J. Watt who brought that up. I don't want to be in a rebuild. And then I asked Deshaun later about that. What do you think about it? Do you think this is a rebuild? Of course, they don't view it that way, nor should they. And I can appreciate that from them as a competitor. But as the person in charge of the future of the franchise, whether that be Cal, whether that be Hell, even Jack Easterby or whoever it is that becomes uh, in charge of the future of the franchise, of, of building the roster or reconstructing the roster, that can't be your mentality. You know, you, you have to have a drain the swamp mentality when it comes to this team because there's it is it is all bad. It is just not there are just not a couple of things that you need to change. There are just a couple of things that you need to keep. You know, it's the opposite. Yeah. You've got a couple of pieces, you know, and they're obvious, right? Deshaun Watson, you know, an, an, an obvious one. And maybe the most and only obvious one outside of, you know, Deshaun Watson and Laramie Tunsil, the, you know, the left tackle that you've paid a great deal to protect him. And then outside of that, everything needs to be open to evaluation at the very least. And at least from the coaching standpoint, drain the swamp, 100% with you. Yeah, and I think, you know, Cal has sat back and watched this team buy high and sell low on so many facets, whether that be in cap dollars, his cap dollars, by the way, yeah. or, you know, and, and it's admirable in a sense that, you know, you know, if the team needs investment, we'll invest, you know, and there was a big article, I think it was in, there was one in Albert Breer, Sports Illustrated, there was one in Peter King's preseason, they were trying to drum up some positive PR for the team. And you, then you can, you know, you could maybe think that the head of PR was doing a good job at that point, but so that, but the, you know, there was a, there was a concerted effort to do that, but yeah, it all just seems so naive when actually, you know, you can, you can win the lottery, but you can spend it like an idiot, and and be broke pretty quickly, and that's kind of basically the, the, the sort of sorry cycle that Cal's let his, you know, his his 
his inherited franchise get into it? And I think the 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 issue is I think talk just just before we wrap up on the coaching staff, I think to me the clearest point I think was Brandon Cooks and and Cobb have both come into this team, been in the league a long time, and they've both made you know, not direct comments, but pretty clear as day that they've said that they're not happy with the level of coaching that this team's got or the or the quality of practice. And I think that was just a testament to how bad it's got of the yes men or whatever you want to call them that O'Brien kept around, that it's not good enough to get results out or get talent out of a lesser roster. We probably had a talented roster, which is, you know, beat the teams we should have not won the big games. Last season looked to be a bit of a turning point, but we blew it in the most spectacular way possible. You think there would be never any comeback for a coach to, to blow a 26-point lead in the playoffs. But he was given it, again, naively from you know ownership. What finds us in when we end up playing a, a Cleveland Browns team who have been the, the butt of the jokes, and it feels like we've definitely replaced them, I think. And I think that the coaching point I mean, Brandon, I think is the coaching has hemmed this offence in because we could not have spent more money on, on time and investment and cap dollars and, and draft picks into this offence. Like, we did that grossly, grossly negligently against the defence. So we've let the defence completely erode, and it was always going to be this season, could the offence shine the light and lead the way? But then when it gets, you know, a blustery day in Cleveland, they can only muster seven points. Yeah, it's so fr- and we talked about this or you mentioned it earlier. It was a game where running the ball was going to be vital for either team, for both teams. You know, I, I watched the tape from the previous game with the Browns and the Raiders, I believe it was. And and that was, you know, you know, that was a really, really tough one. And I thought, man, this is not gonna be you know, this this is not going to be fun, you know, for a team that likes to, I don't know, flashy is the right word, but has invested in speed and wants to, you know, drive the ball downfield. And, you know, their only redeeming quality seems to be Deshaun Watson and and whenever he's brilliant, you know. And so I, I thought, hey, they're going to have to play a game that they're not good at playing. You know, that that's going to have to be what this is. And at times they did it. You know, I don't think you can watch that game and for a second think that the Browns didn't outplay the Texans. I think they they outplayed them thoroughly, but the Texans hung in there at times and it was a winnable game. You know, I think that's the the part about it, too, that is probably the most frustrating is that they played a game that they were set up to lose in, built, built to fail because they don't have they don't do the things well that you need to do to win that game. And there they were still in it with an opportunity to do it. And they just couldn't do it. <laughs> and the ways in which they couldn't do it were so glaring. You know, they highlighted where the team is weak, right? With the tackling and, and you know, disciplining your gap. That, you know, gap discipline. Imagine that. Um, and, and not just that, but lack of like if you're not disciplining your gap that has to mean what that you're good that you must be good at making plays right you know like you have to be but so talented to not be gap disciplined 
So it's like one or the other, you know, they're either not disciplined or not talented or both, you know, and, you know, that, that, that's highlighted in this game, you know? And so it, it, it was, it was, it was a game in which I did not like, I think I picked on my podcast last week that the score would be 19 to 13 Browns. You know, I thought that there would at least be some scoring, (laughs) you know, I did not, I was not expecting a three to nothing halftime and to have taken very little notes by the time the first, by the time halftime had, had, had arrived, you know, like it was just a, it, it was, it was just really, really r- rough to watch um, the Texans get beat up in the places where you know that they're, that they're weak and that's on the inside, that's on the interior, you know, and, and they, they just didn't have it. They didn't have it. And, you know, it was a winnable game. They've got the opportunity there at the end and, you know, they, and and they come up short the way that they have all season, you know? So it, it, it wasn't surprising, but all, all the same disappointing when you think of, Hey, somehow they had a chance to sort of steal this game and, and just couldn't do it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think at any point, if you, if you said to me, any game, you have to take it or leave it now, your defense will hold a team to 10 points. You take it every single week. Yep. And, you know, and it wasn't with, it wasn't without the chances, but I think just, just before we move on to some of the key decisions, gap discipline, you talked about that. And I put, a, I was trying on the all 22 comes in, I choose I put clips and some of my observations and I'm not going to say I'm the most, you know, classically trained in, in, uh, in pro football. Um, but sometimes I think a lot of it is, you know, it's just in the tape and I, I saw Brett Veach talk about that before and he said, you know, it's not about what, you know, you just have to watch it enough times and see it and everyone can see it. Yep. You just got to put in the effort. And I think that's true. Um, it is. Because it's, it's a game that's probably clouded with a lot of terminology. Um, but actually, the, you know, the basics of what those terminology mean is just it's just to, to hide that from your opponent. So, but the, I, I put out, and I, I've often been critical of this guy. And look, I, when I first started watching this team, he was everything about this team. He was Mr. Houston. He'll probably go into the Hall of Fame as Mr. Houston for the efforts, Hurricane, Harvey, and, and, and so forth. But at this stage of his career, when you want to talk about gap discipline, when the guy who you've basically built the entire defense around continues to not set the edge, he did it for the touchdown, he did it twice on the opening drive, yep. he did it a number of times. Now, you know, somebody messaged back and said, well, do you want to show us the TFLs as well? And you're like, it's fine, but I think exactly the point where you've just made there, Brandon, was he, you know, JJ used to do that. If you take him as an example, he used to do that, but it didn't matter because he made so many great plays, sacks, TFLs, forced fumbles. That actually he said, well, we can live with that because, you know, for every run that they, you know, they break to the outside, he may be giving us three or four, uh, you know, three or four plays that will put the, the, the opposing offense behind the chains. But at this stage of his career with all the injuries and it's not for lack of trying, is, uh, the juice isn't there anymore, just like the juice isn't there with Whitney Merciless. Um, and that's been harrowing in terms of the contract that he's been given. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just, it's it's a it's an issue that this defense is a lack of talent. There's older players that are getting overpaid and they just didn't replace the talent when and how they needed to. And that stems all the way right from 2017 off, 2018 off season, right? And it's just culminated in, 
that gradual drain. And we don't want to go over it again because everybody knows they should have kept Kareem Jackson, they should have kept AJ Boye, they should have kept DJ Reader, they should have kept Jadavian Clown. If you put all those guys on this defense right now, probably got a championship roster. And that's 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 the difference of all these decisions make up to this point. But actually, this, the reality is, we're you know we're we're three years away from that. And I think beating the Browns was almost getting beat by the Browns in a way like that, where they only scored one touchdown. Was it was almost poetic in the in the fact that how far we have fallen. I think. Yeah, I, I totally agree. A point about JJ that I want to make that speaks to the desperation on defense. JJ's not nearly the player he was, right? He, you know, he's an all time yeah. great. You know, he had a stretch there where he's as dominant as anybody that's ever played up front. But he's not that guy anymore. Still, not being that guy, being maybe 60 to 7, I don't know, I don't want to put a non-scientific percentage on it, but not being the guy that he was, let's call it 70% of what he was, he is still by far their best player up front. I mean, you could argue Zach Cunningham, and that, that, that's its own conversation and its own issue, and, and he's, I mean, he's a dynamic player who does some frustrating things at times, and he, he probably actually is your, you know, your best guy up front, but let's take him out of the equation like the guy's really up front in the trenches. J.J. Watt's your best guy by a mile, you know, and, and it, it speaks to the issues that I think this team has where J.J. Watt's the best, like I just said, the best defensive player or the best defensive lineman on this team by a mile. That should not be the case. Bradley Roby is your best cornerback by a mile. No disrespect to Bradley Roby, but that should not be the case. You know, like they have guys in positions and playing in roles that they should not be in. And and that is that is the story of the team, at least of the defense for sure. Um, and you could make the same argument about how the running game is implemented and how, and like we were saying earlier, their evaluation of running backs and things of that nature. But specifically with the defense, I mean, th- there are guys in roles that they just should not be in or should have been passed by now. Like, you've seen the best of Whitney Merciless. You've seen the best of J.J. Watt. Bradley Roby should be your second best corner. And if he's your first best corner, your second best corner can't be drastically worse than he is. You know, like that. Like these are the things that have to come together and have not. You know, so it's that's, that's just sort of the, the story of the team right now. If you come back to say Anthony Weaver, for example, and I think he started the the year well, but it's it's declined. And you know, I, I saw a tweet. I think it was Rivers McCammon before the game, and he said, you know, if, and if you just take it in isolation, take all the names out, for example. But you put a single high safety in the box, you take a a big rangy corner and put them at, at you know at free safety. Yeah. You take a safety and move him to slot corner. You take the slot corner and move him out onto the perimeter. Yeah. Do you think that's going to work? And, you know, if if you asked any coach, whether it be Pop Warner, you know, Friday night lights, you know, up the road, you know, from, from NRG or wherever it would be, or any sport or any context, it wouldn't work and you would get a universal, you know, you know, chuckle out of it. It's just so ridiculous. But yeah, that's the that's the position that Vernon Hargreaves finds himself in, who is not capable of being, you know, in that third and eighteen or third and nineteen that they converted. 
was a backbreaker, just as there was. And I don't know why Anthony Weaver keeps doing this. It's been my pet hate, and I've watched it for weeks now, since probably since the Minnesota game. At what point does he think that this defense is good enough to only rush three? Because it's not. It just simply isn't. And he did it right, you know, the second last drive before the Browns killed it, and he rushed three. It was a third and eight, third and nine, anyway, third and long, you know, and they and they run a draw play, and they basically killed the game at that point. So I think there's a mixture again of just, as he said, poor talent, that I just don't think Weaver is doing enough, or he's probably almost doing too much to get some of these, uh, to get to get the best out of the, the, the poor hand that he's dealt talent-wise on his defense. Yeah, and that's a curious thing, too, about, like, why is he rushing three? I thought he did a little bit more with blitzing against the Jaguars in the game that they that they had, you know, in the previous week. And I, I, I was somewhat encouraged by that. Um, like you saw corner blitzes that I feel like you didn't in safety blitzes that, that I don't feel like you see all, nearly often enough. And so, you know, why they went away from that, I have no idea. I have, I have no idea. But the, the thing that you mentioned just real quick about, you know, moving up the, the Rivers McCown tweet and moving everybody out of their spots. It speaks to them really believing in that versatility line that they were feeding us this whole time. Like, yeah. you know, you know, sink or swim for better or worse. They really actually believe in you know this jack of all trades you know master of none philosophy and it you know it's not working it is just simply not working and then it it looks so bad when it doesn't work because you're like well okay this doesn't make sense to be, to begin with you know it, it 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 seems like it was destined to fail you know when you move around move guys around like that who are not all to begin with not elite at what they actually do you know, to think that you can go, you know, that Eric Murray, who's not even an elite safety, is going to be able to play slot corner for you is... Um, you paid him like one, though. <laughs> yeah, and they paid him like one. I, I, I just, I have no words, man. I have no words for that one because it's like, okay, no one knows who this guy is. How do you, you know, how do you guys figure? How do you figure <laughs> that Eric Murray yeah. is going to be able to come in here and be a, and, and and start at safety for you and, and and spell you at corner, and no one's ever heard of the guy. That's the first time we've ever signed somebody. I've been watching this team for just coming on a decade, and that's the first time we've ever signed somebody that wasn't to the practice squad. That I've had to Google and just work out who the hell it was when it first came up, and I was like, oh, that guy he was at the Chiefs, and he was at the Browns. Okay, right, you know, and I think. You know, again, it comes back. We don't want to repeat ourselves, but it's 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 different. I think in the couple of decisions that again come came down to the head coach certainly in terms of the way he phrased it, because I, I think if you think of the the transition right, and we thought you know we get rid of O'Brien, it solves all our problems. And anybody watching this team in the first four weeks would probably have told you an honest assessment that that was not the case. But then you 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 have Jacksonville and a get right game. And it was actually a tight game that people, you know, choose to forget before a fourth down call, and and, uh, and Brandon Cooks goes and scores his first touchdown of the season at that point. You take that aggressiveness out, and then you get bad results. And actually, O'Brien was almost living through some of these coaches this week because the off offense was incredibly conservative, played within itself, seemed, you know, hesitant to to try and you know attack, you know, which actually Cleveland. Played a lot of single high. Yeah. What you know, they expected you know short pass the short passing game, and it felt like 
Tim Kelly kind of set it up for kind of dink and dunk stuff. And, you know, a part of that, would, I would agree with the conditions, but you had to, you know, drive enough wrinkles in there to, to you know, to, to, to break away some tendencies. But but the, the difference was that Cornell came in, bit of life, goes for that fourth down call. Then you've got, and then he goes for a play, but on the on the first or the second drive, the first drive is three and out, as it has been classically for much of the year. Second drive, Cobb drops it in the end zone, and then they go for a draw play on a fourth down. And it felt like that play was just, I, I don't know. I mean, like these guys are paid far more than I'll ever earn to make these decisions, but that a draw play at that point without a lead blocker seemed kind of a strange decision to make when it's an all or nothing play. There was no kind of, you know, roll out and fair enough, there's a dump off like there was in the Cobb play. You can see, you know, I can kind of admire that play because you think, well, it almost worked. He should have caught it, but there you yeah. go. But that that play, I thought there, you know, I think with hindsight, you would have been better kicking the field goal if you didn't known how tight the game was because the longer the clock ticks on and you're sitting with a zero, that just adds pressure. And you saw that when they came out in the second half. Yeah, so I liked the decision and was just baffled by the play call. And honestly, you know, if I'm not going hindsight here, if I don't play the results and just live in the moment and how I felt and what I thought, I just don't understand why the plays weren't flip-flopped. Like, if you were going to do that, and, and obviously don't run that play at all if you don't have a lead blocker. I mean, what the hell? But if you're going to run the play, do that one on third down. And then the, the pass that Cobb, dropped you know the pick play that that they ran on third down should have been the fourth down play you know and, and to me and again I'm, I'm just like you I don't get paid to do this to to call plays never done it in a, outside of playing Madden you know in a video game but to me that just seemed to be the more logical thing to do you know to you know not for your all like you said not for your all or nothing play let it be a draw play for Deshaun Watson without a lead blocker. And then the, the way that I knew that that this was not going to work was, or maybe this is actually hindsight if I'm honest about it, but I can remember watching the game and Matt Millen, the color commentary uh, on the game, called out both plays. <laughs> he called out both plays and was 100% correct on them. And my thought is, man, if Matt Millen, you know, old as he is and, <laughs> you know, if Matt Millen's calling your plays out, I got a sense that the Browns' defense might have a beat on it too, and it certainly felt like it and seemed like it when they ran those plays. Um, you know, that would have that would have yeah. been the perfect play for that speed auction. They've run it so many times. You could have run that twice, once to either side, you know, or yep. something that you've done that you okay. I know it didn't it didn't necessarily work when that Green Bay game it was an emphatic fail, and maybe yes. they, they scrubbed it out of that, but. With a guy like Duke Johnson with a bit more juice in his legs, it's probably an okay play to run. Um, you know, or you do it to a tight end, or you do, you know, just do something. But I think that the overall point is the fact that you and I can sit and talk about how basically obvious it was. Yeah. And every week there is such a limit of creativity. You could count on one hand plays that you go, all right, quite like that. You know, and it, that shouldn't be the case. At this level, defenses are too good to not have enough creativity week to week. It just bewilders me every week, Brandon, how Tim Kelly isn't able to install five, six, kind of got to have it, different situation plays. Going, Guys, this is a new install this week. On a third and one, we're going to do this. Because yeah. that just does not seem to be happening right now. Yeah, no, I mean, they, they don't have it, man. I mean, the 
later in the game, the the timeout before the field goal. Oh yeah. You know that that <laughs> I mean they admit to us. I, I, I didn't know what we wanted to do there. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd like for you to like. I'm gonna be honest with you. <laughs> I don't think I knew what I wanted to do there either. If I'm a hundred percent honest with you, and and in, after I thought about it, I, I'd like to go for it. But I need you, the coach, to know what you want to do there. You know, I'm not being paid to do this job. You know, so I, like I have an excuse. But you've got to know. You know, and and to you know burn a timeout in that moment and not have it. I mean, it speaks. I feel like it speaks to the same point that you're making about Tim Kelly yeah. not having those those plays that he can rely on in those key down and distance situations. And that was a killer losing that timeout. I, I can't remember the exact personnel group we were in, but it just again just a similar point I made a second ago. But for the life of me, I can't understand why for a second we haven't got a one word call in the huddle. And it might be whatever the hell you want it to be. If we're an 11 personnel, we've got one that goes left, one that goes right, and you go hurry up and you run it as quick as you can as soon as everybody's set. You know, when you've got a, you know, and you see the Patriots do it all the time when there's a, maybe going to be a challenge or, or, um, or what, you know, or whatever. You want to just get up to the line and, and make a quick play or it's a QB sneak or whatever it might be. But I just can't believe we've not got emergency quick one or two yard plays in the back pocket. Every single player on that roster, 53, whether he's on special teams or whether he's on the practice squad, knows that that's what we do, you know, for this week, you know, and you change it every week. But it just seems so base. And I know it's easy to sit here and criticize the Monday morning or Tuesday morning quarterback, but I think it's. It's just, it just seems like it could be better. And I think that's the biggest frustration and my biggest frustration for Watson. I hope it doesn't continue beyond this year as much as it has done, but it just feels like he's been hemmed in. And you saw that in the offense because I think they weren't aggressive enough. And then the first uh, drive out the second half, you get the ball back, you think it's 3 0 half time. We've got a chance in this one. You come out in the second half and you actually, Titus Howard, uh, runs a sort of kind of power play across the formation, seals off the edge, and and uh, Duke gets his biggest run of the day, and you thought, okay, here we go. But then, again, when it comes back to the play calling and coaching, if you if you go for a shot on first and second down, why call a Yankee concept again for the second time in three downs when you need to get a first down? And the, and the whole point of this game is time of possession. Because it's a bad conditions. Yeah, man, and I want to go back real quick to a point that you made about sort of the pace a little bit, like, and and not seeing it's it to the untrained eye. Even it seems like an offense that's unsure. It moves like yeah. an offense that is unsure of itself. You know, uh, one of the buzzwords that gets thrown around a lot in in our press conferences and in these discussions is tempo. Why don't they play with more tempo? Why doesn't the offense play with more tempo? And I don't think that a lot of us who use the term actually really know what it means. I don't think it's necessarily tempo uh, or, or no no huddle, so to speak, as it is just knowing what you're doing. Like, it seems like after every play, they're like, okay, now what, guys? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, that didn't work, now what? Or that did work, now what? You know? And and I'm not accusing them of not having a plan or or not actually – game planning for these games i'm sure that they do but it's just not obvious to the even to the untrained eye and and there are folks who break down this thing way better than i do who would agree with me who would say the same thing that they just don't really seem to have a good grip for 
what it is that they want to do in a certain situation. And I think the, you know, the example that you laid out speaks to that perfectly. And the, and as well, do you, do you remember at Hard Knocks? It was the preseason oh, yeah. game against the 49ers. And O'Brien's mm-hmm. coming out and he's going, speed this slow shit up. <laughs> and you think yeah. that was then. So that was his coaching fundamentals at that point. So, and I think, again, it probably goes back to the point. Of, I think he just lost sight, as these coaches have, of the fundamentals or the the key points that they held dear, and he got too over focused on, you know, other things. But it, it just, yeah, it just seems like things are stale, like you said, and and they just it's not. And I, again, it just comes back to the point of you think if you get a short play, okay, so say one of those plays do come off, then they go for, they go for it fuller, and it almost like the wind catches it. He gets one hand and it just sort of drops, kind of very yep. slowly next to. His, then it's he's got press coverage on the outside. Denzel Ward next down. He tries to knock it, and Fuller doesn't really get the separation from the line on his get off. And then and then actually there was a the next play where they run another two receiver route on third down, which I just don't get. Um, yeah. But actually, uh, uh, Brandon Cooks is away, but. He, but his actual route, instead of just being a straight go or a nine route, it's 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 an in cut at the um, at the top, and uh, and the safety just takes Deshaun away from it, and then he ends up trying to spill it out to Duke for a, a dump off, and he he's hit as he throws, and you're off the field again. I thought at that point, I think I think this game's probably gone on too far without a scoring, and it just kind of compounded, as I said, as long as the clock ticks on, you don't score, but then. What I didn't get about it is when they did go for the field goal, they'll put the fake punt aside or the, the fake field goal punt, whatever the hell that was. I mean, <laughs> he, he, we'll come on to that, why that was ineffective. And, we, and we sh- they showed that right at the end of the game. But the why did they not go for it on fourth and three and try and kick a field goal at that point? When you want to hold on to the ball, anything under four and five, I think you've just got to go for it. There's nothing to lose at this point in the season. Well, and... And, and I, I wanted to mention too that that one to that Will Fuller got his hand on that was just a bad ball by Deshaun. I think that was a ball Deshaun would yeah, like. Didn't lay it out. Yeah, didn't Yeah, and, and perhaps the I don't know having not I wasn't there at the game, but the conditions did not seem friendly. Obviously, I mean, we've talked about that already. It was a game for that was built for the run game, but you know the weather conditions. But I I, I don't know how much Deshaun was affected by the weather, especially as a guy who doesn't play in, in those conditions um, a lot. But to the point that you made just now, yeah. No, I was somewhat uncertain in the moment. I, I struggled in the moment as well, if I'm honest with you. But in retrospect, man, I'm like, yeah, look, you, you, need, to, <laughs> you need to score the ball. And the issue with the field goal, I would have felt better about in better conditions. But like the the field goal is not the only argument for the field goal is that it's the sure thing, you know. Um, that that is the singular argument for the field goal if you if you're gonna do it if you're not gonna be aggressive, and in these conditions it wasn't that. I mean, he even said, and and I would agree with this that, you know, Kaimi kicked that ball about as good as he could, and it just didn't, you know, just I think the wind pushed it, and that was not the good the right decision right there, you know. I think you need to keep it in the hands of your offense because you've got a much better chance of getting those three yards than you do of knocking down that field goal. So that's just that's where I'm at on that. That the given the weather and the fact that Duke had showed shown some pop, I think on that drive they were a little bit inconsistent running the ball. Um, but 
do something. <laughs> do something with your offense. Put the ball in Deshaun Watson's hand. I don't care if it's a, you know, if 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 it's got to be a read option play. You know, I, I would have been much more comfortable with them being aggressive there. And again, the, let's go back to logic, man. <laughs> Where what is the consistency of the logic that had you go for it way earlier in the game, but not right there in that moment? You know, we're yeah. to me a much more desperate point of the game. So I, and I, I think when you think about it situationally as well, right? So you think you're right in front of the post, probably the best chance you're going to get to kick it, shortest field goal possible. Mm-hmm. Kick it there, tie the game up, keep it going. But I think, fair enough, you don't have the benefit of how the game's played out at that point. So yeah, fair enough, you missed. But then to then not go for it on fourth and third when you when you didn't kick, when you didn't kick a field goal before because you said you were concerned about the conditions to oh, then that's... kick that field goal later on. Um, from a further distance just seemed inconsistent in the decision making yeah. and to call the time out like we already talked about at the same time to, when you needed to you know when you're chasing the game you need the timeouts and you want to hold on to them as long as possible didn't do that so f- from that point of view disappointing so yeah I think in that moment to not to not go for it it seemed weak but I think that the moment that it was almost so predictable like all this game is and probably all this we've talked about you you get the you get the score and we'll put to aside that either Fuller or uh, Farrell Brown run the wrong route because they're in the same, basically in the same position when uh, Brown gets his first touchdown for the team and I think yeah I mean the, what the a goofy of, touchdown right what a goofy yeah goofy <laughs> and but I, I I just thought all game why were the tight ends not involved in the passing game and why has Jordan Aitkins been relegated in terms of touches when it felt like short passes to the tight ends were going to rule the roost that day. Yeah. You know, so I wondered about that as well. At one point I thought, okay, is, is he fully back to himself? Is he not a hundred percent? But whenever they do experiment with that, he looks fine to me physically. I don't know. Um, And we haven't spoken to him since he came back from the, you know, the concussion. And I think it was a low, I can't remember if it was a ankle or a leg or whatever it was. And so, like, we haven't been able to 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 speak with him on that matter. But when you look at him, you're like, he doesn't seem limited. What what's the deal here? Like, especially when you consider what he was from a production standpoint before the injury. You know, before Harrison Smith knocks him out of the Vikings game, he was among the favorite targets. You know, along with Fuller, was pretty much a go to guy for Deshaun. And now he seems to be like just a phenomenal I don't I don't know it's like it's, it's like he's Kenny Stills in the offense now yeah you know like he's just a just a guy and I, I thought that he had shown an ability to be a go-to so I, I didn't understand I don't understand that at all um, I oh, go ahead no I was gonna say I, what I don't get was how Kenny Stills has not become a go-to this year <laughs> when when he was at, when he was a go-to week one when he only arrived you know less than a week before his first game and c- catches what should have been a game winner Against New Orleans, right? You know, when you think so, what's changed? And I, yeah. I don't know if it's the calling or the just that that having you know consistently having a Cobb in the slot. But then you think actually, you take that money that you've paid Cobb, and you could argue it was a move you didn't need to make. You just could have said to Kenny, "Look, Kenny, it's one year. I want you and Kiki to split the snaps in the slot, and uh, and and this is it. And these are going to be your go-to plays on third and you know third and fourth down and third and short. You know, so." It just seems odd that we've just basically taken a guy who I think still is getting seven or eight million this year. And seven, yeah. seven I believe it was. Yeah. yeah. And he's not seeing the ball. And I just think, you know, 
how much that defence could use seven or eight million worth of talent, which could be three role players potentially. But yeah, we don't want to go over all ground. But the point I was going to make there, Brandon, was that they, they muffed the, the kickoff and it, and it, and uh, when we've just scored. So there's three points in it and we pinned them down in their five-yard line. And you thought, I thought at that point, after all this I've been watching, 37-minute delay, we've finally got to this point, I think we've got a chance if we could just get a three and out here. And it couldn't have been less, they couldn't have made it more, no, I don't think it was easy, but you saw that and you saw JJ's comments and Justin Reed missed a tackle and he's had a terrible year, Justin Reed. He's not, I can't, don't think he's had a good game all year by his standards or what we know he can play by. And I don't know if all the injuries have just mounted up and he's just not the player. But again, I think it comes back to the point. He's not a box safety. He's a single high guy with a bit of, you know, mobility and agility to cover up on the back end. But at that point, I thought, you know, we've got a chance. But then again, the the common notion or the common sentiment that I have at the end of every Texans week in this year is I just felt so naive when I watched uh, I think it was a Kareem Hunter Chubb. I can't remember. Stepped out of bounds right at the end and just took it up to the one yard line. It was Chubb. Chubb. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. It was Chubb. And <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, naivety is the sickness. I feel like for the Texans fan, you know, yeah. because they do things at times that make you think, all right, it, it it's gonna turn here. You know, it, it's it's not a helpless team you know it's not a or I should say hopeless team you know they and in that moment you think yeah well no one's been able to score for the most part all game you know with these small exceptions and so yeah you you think that in that situation you're good and I mean just to Justin Reed that's literally uh, box safety or not man box safety or not that's basically I mean, he's dead to rights there, Chubb is. That's exactly how that play is supposed to go, you know, for the most part. You know, yeah. that is exactly where you want to be, you know. And what was J.J.'s quote after the game, you know, from, from my vantage? I think we ask these very generic questions sometimes of, hey, what, what did you see? What was your vantage point? You know, and we all saw the same exact thing. You know, it was yeah. a very clear. <laughs> this, you do not need to be a football savant to, to see what happened on that play. And, and so, you know, J.J. says, hey, you know, uh, we got the guy four or five yards behind the line of scrimmage, and and then he was at the one-yard line. Because <laughs> that's literally a, that's literally what happened, man. You know, he he gets by Justin Reed, and with not even a, I mean, just a slight hesitation there. You know, it, that, that wasn't the, you know, juke him out of his shoes, you know, or a, a, a yeah. Barry Sanders jump cut. It's a bad angle. You know, yeah, just a bad angle from from Justin Reed, and then you know, of course, the the bigger guys are unable to even touch Kareem Hunt on the sideline as he as he or I should say Nick Chubb as he goes down the sideline, and you know, and the story goes as it goes. So, um, yeah, man, the naivety, but at the same time, you know. I can blame you for being naive, maybe because the Texans have shown you over and over that they're going to break your hearts. But at the same time, you look at that play and you think, well, no way, no way. If you do the freeze frame right before you before you realize that Justin Reed's going to take the bad angle, you do the freeze frame there and you're like, well, no way he's going to make it down that sideline with all with this crowded group here. 
you know, there's too many bodies here for him to get to make it through. <laughs> and just lo and behold, sure, sure enough, he did. You know, so uh, it's, I mean, it, it was just deflating, you know, def- yeah. deflating to watch it in that way when, you know, this is not a good defense, not a good run defense, but at times they, you know, with the exception of when we talked about JJ earlier, they, they, not filling his gaps and things of that nature, not being the player that he used to be to, to be able to do those sort of things. But at times, this defense was adequate. Not good or great, but yeah. adequate. It was at times. And then you get that realization right there in that play. Oh, yeah, that's right. This is the defense that's not good at all. You know, this is this is who we thought they were. And it, it feels like, again, just repetition, but it feels like, you know, if you thought about the, the Baltimore game, it happened in Pittsburgh and it happened again on Sunday and it's happened a number of other times as well that the dam just breaks in the run defense and they just give up a hell of a lot of yards in the fourth quarter. And it works both ways because you could argue, as you said, they just need to do enough to keep them in the game. But the offense then doesn't do enough and then they just can't, you know, they can't uh, stop the bleeding and it just spirals and gives a, a, a set or a lack of positives that you can take out the game when a game ends like that i think if you if you have the ball and you're driving and you try and score and you don't you think or they score last second if you leave too much time on the clock those you know like tennessee you can kind of take those defeats but defeats where it just the other team's kneeling it out it take gives you very little positivity for the next week And the next week is, you know, our old foes from New England who I don't really know what to make of them, but they could be sitting at 500 after they play, after they come to Houston on Sunday. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you um, as far as what the Patriots are. You know, they look nothing to me, nothing like the Patriots that I've come to know and understand. So I have to totally, you know, recalculate on, you know, what it means for the Patriots to be coming, uh, to be coming here. You know, it felt totally different last year. Um, and I, you know, I thought that was, you know, maybe one of the Texans better wins last year, maybe for some fool's gold, maybe, maybe, maybe made you think that they were better than they were. Um, but one of their better wins last year. And, you know, now, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see what they do now after going against one of the better Russian attacks in the league, and now they have to deal with Cam Newton, who looks a lot better than he did when he first came back from COVID, uh, from the COVID list, and this sort of seems to be looking more like he did at the very beginning of the season. They've always struggled with mobile quarterbacks, but Cam is of a different variety because he's mobile and he's a bruiser and he's a a big guy. You know, he's the size of your linebackers, maybe bigger. Right. So in, in some cases. So, you know, I, I, I do not feel good about like, how do you feel about the Texans in, in uh, short yardage situations with Cam Newton uh, running the show for the Patriots? I'm terrified of it, if I'm honest with you. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's I, and, and he's not the guy that he used to be. You know, he used to be an automatic, you know, in those in those scenarios. But. When I look at this defense and what they've shown so far, you know, 
I, I just I, I see them having a really tough time in this game. And I can't, you know, I think I think you know people talked about there was a four game stretch here we could maybe breathe some life into the season, but when you looked at the Browns and then you looked at New England and you look, you know, you watch how they ran the ball on on a on a defense on a defensive Baltimore. Okay, it was the conditions were again the conditions dictated. I'm not seeing rain like that at a game for a while, but it was. It was a game where they, you know, they've coached their way back into it. And you know, if you think when I know Seattle were flying high at the time and have kind of dipped off and lost, lost the last two, but they played well against Seattle and should have should have won. And and I don't I don't think Houston have ever beaten Cam, have they? Cam, oh, yeah. You know what? I don't because twenty fifteen was week one or week two, I think, in Carolina. That was yeah, the year they went that. to the Super Bowl, and then was he, he was in the league the year the four years but prior. Which would have been what twenty eleven, and I don't think they won that one either. Maybe yeah, correct. That was his rookie year, twenty eleven. Yeah, yeah. So you know, when you think, you just think the way this defense is set up. Now, I think the the difference between well, I mean, I suppose because it was Jarvis Landry and Rashad Higgins, right? You know, that was that was who was out there, and we struggled to you know cope with them. And you think, just sell out and stop the run, shorten intermediate stuff. There's, you know, there's no Edelman. You know, there's no Gronk anymore, obviously in Tampa. This should be a simpler format to stop them on offense, but I just don't think we can stop the run. Even if we put eight, eight, nine man boxes and stack it up, I just still think they'll find ways for us to miss tackles or misdirect. And I, it kind of feels walking into it, it's going to be the same as this Sunday. Is can they stop the dam for long enough breaking in terms of the run defense? And does Deshaun, because he's from that, he's from that, re, you know, he's from, um, Going to Clemson, Carolina, and you know he's he's talked about a link with Cam. Does that bring out an otherworldly performance? We've probably not seen, you know, where you've thought Deshaun just took a grip of this game for this from the from the first second and didn't let go every time he got on the field. Is do you think that's going to be enough to inspire him against what was you know effectively a mentor for him when he's coming through the ranks of high school and college? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not really sure how much. Yeah, I think that he, that Deshaun, at least the way I'd like to see it, he, that he'd just be inspired by all the losing. You know, I, I can tell you for a fact that last year when they played the Patriots, he was inspired by playing against Tom Brady and that he wanted a win against the GOAT, before, you know, yeah. before the GOAT. You know, and at, at that time, we didn't know if Brady was going to retire or what, you know, what the future was going to look like. So in Deshaun's mind at the time, he, you know, he wants to get a win over this guy before, you know, he goes out to pasture. So I know that motivated him. It could be something similar here, uh, just, you know, from a different angle, like what you mentioned of him, you know, looking up to Cam coming up. Uh, you know, they're both they're both, uh, you know, actually, you know, kind of Georgia guys. They're both from from the Atlanta area, you know. So um, so I, I know for a fact that, you know, that that's a guy that if you're Deshaun's age, you looked up to somebody like Cam, you know. Um, so, I mean, that could be something there, but. You know, what you mentioned about simple things and this being, you know, a, a game where it's a sort of a simple formula to beat them. You know, you would feel good about that as a Texans fan if you felt like the Texans did the simple things well. And it actually seems to be the simple things that they struggle with. Yeah. You know, and oh, so. I remember watching in the year that New England won it, they beat the Rams in a sort of defensive masterclass. They, if you remember the game against San Francisco, so San, not San Francisco, sorry, San, San Diego at the time, but now LA, 
they came in there and they they weren't probably weren't the better team, but they found a way just to run the ball and they just ran a lot of eye formation. And not to go back earlier, but why the hell a team that can't run the ball have they not just put a full back in there and see what happens? You know, and I think that's just it just it speaks again to the the lack of willingness to try new things um, when you need to run the ball. Gillespie is sitting there, plays the special teams. Don't think he's shown anything other than some signs of positivity, but he doesn't get any snaps, so it's hard for him to be tuned in totally. But what you know, if you can't run the ball, and we've not got a, and you know, we're probably going to be you know focused on giving Duke enough carries, but or you know, we didn't give him enough carries. But why didn't you just simple thing like that? Just put Colin Gillespie in there, let him be the lead blocker. Might only do it for you know three series out of the eight or nine that you have the ball. We'll just see if it works and if it helps you move run the ball on the ground because we're going to need to balance this attack out against you know a Belichick's sort of led defense because you can't be too predictable or it'll just be you know it won't be uh it'll be another defeat i think it's as simple as that yeah i'm with you on the lead blocker with Gillespie and the eye formation but i think where i'd push back is that i mean you still have to get pushed from your guards yeah you know like like you can't that that doesn't work with the offensive line play that you're getting on either side and and, and for all of the i know that the talk is often focused on the right side about, you know, because Laramie Tunsil is so good. And so people look at Titus Howard whenever there's a shortcoming and then Zach Fulton hasn't been good at all. But, I mean, I feel like that, that's the side they run to more often. And and then with, uh, you know, at, at left guard, quiet is kept, you know, that's that's been a disaster, you know. And so I, I'm not really sure, man. I'll be honest with you. Like, I, I, I love the... I'm open to anything like at this point. So I'm I'm not shutting it down or saying, Hey, don't do that. But as far as hope or naivety, as we talked about earlier, man, I ain't got it. I'm not there. I'm not, I'm not convinced that, you know, just, just simply making Gillespie the lead backer is going to be the solution to a run, uh, a rushing attack that, that can't push. I mean, you, you've got to go. And what I don't understand for the life of me, I can never understand struggling in in uh, in run blocking because I, I was always told, at least, that offensive linemen like to go forward. You know that that's what they want to do. You know that 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 they get amped to run the ball. So, you know, to me, it seemed like what you described should fit to their sensibilities and, and, and what they should want to do sort of at the core of them as offensive linemen. And, and, and obviously with Cullen Gillespie at fullback, why they don't do any of that more. I think it speaks to the production that they've had and, and, you know, maybe the realization, the sobering realization that they don't have the personnel to do those things well. Yeah. And I think it's, yeah, it, I mean, I, I don't expect them in any way to do that. I really don't. Um, <laughs> Just something as simple, you know, or as yeah, additive to the offense, is that? And also with Deshaun, I know I've gotten a lot better with this, but there was a point, I can't remember where I stopped being this way, but there was a point where every time Deshaun got under center and wasn't in shotgun, I thought, what the hell are they doing? Deshaun doesn't know what he's doing under center. Uh, but obviously you have to coach him up and <laughs> help him figure that out. But there would have been a time when I would have rejected that entirely because I just didn't feel like that was the best way to use Deshaun Watson. And so, it, I mean, it's nice to see that he's better under center. And uh, and I, I would love for them to be able to line up in the I formation and go. 
Um, and so, I, honestly, I'm just waiting to see at what point do they address the personnel issues on the, along the offensive line that we thought was going to be fantastic. And maybe it's not a personnel issue. Maybe it's coaching. You know, uh, maybe that's w- what the answer is there. But, yeah, I, I'm open to all the solutions but don't necessarily believe in any of them until, you know, we get some wholesale changes. And I think a wholesale change that I don't think there'll be many, you'll be hard-pressed not to find somebody who's of a Texans concern would want this change, and you'd think it'd be the first general manager move to do. But in terms of Jack Easterby, did Bill Belichick's comment of he's not a personnel guy, do you think that that low-key comment, and I'm sure Cal will see it, do you think that saved us in some ways? I know that there's a belief that it did. Maybe I'm too optimistic on this part, but I don't think that anyone necessarily thought that he was. I think the the misstep here is maybe the the thought that he doesn't have to be to do the job that they've set him up to do, that maybe he can build this roster without being a personnel guy. Because, I mean, no one who knows him would tell you that. I think it was shock. It was somewhat shocking, and I'm sitting right in the same spot that I was when I was on that call with Bill Belichick, and he said that. And there was a moment of silence, a pause, because there was just the shock that he would that he would just say it out loud, or that someone with Bill Belichick's credibility would would say this out loud and articulate this thing that we all already knew. You know, this is already understood, but that he would say it. But I don't know if Cal McNair actually believes that he is but that he is drawn to the things that he does do well the things that by all accounts Jack Easterby is good at and that's being a people person a I don't know if he's a consensus builder I don't know if that's the word I'm looking for to use a a political term but he's he's a guy that people like want to be around it seems like you know, and I, I don't know what that does for, for building a football roster. Like, I don't see how that translates. And, again, it's part of what bothers me and concerns me about who Cal McNair gets his advice from and, and what is he prone to listen to, what does he believe in, what does he think success looks like, or how you build success, the formula to it. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know because I'm not sure if it was a revelation. You know, it was damning. And I do know, just based off of my own Twitter account, that they've gotten a lot of attention for it, that there's been a lot of focus on it. There's been a lot of talk about what Bill Belichick said about the person who has been tasked with overseeing the football operation side of this team, for him to just say point blank that he's not a personnel person. But I, I, I don't know. I don't know how that resonates with Cal and if that was what he viewed him as to begin with or if he views this character coaching aspect of Jack Easterby, this thing that he does do well apparently, as like something that's important to the overall you know, ethos and construction of the team. It's, it's, an, it's an odd element because we're dealing with a couple of things here that, that I think are, are delicate. You know, there's, there's like religion going on. Yeah, and and it, it it's just it is an awkward place because like I'm not here to crap on anybody's religion or anything yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But but I'm just kind of like, hey man, this doesn't really have be- like you guys can pray and 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 believe and do all of these things. You know, I'm far be it from me, but 
none of these things compute or or relate to where we are the the the, the state of affairs you know I, I i even think about like with deandre uh deandre hopkins and the the, the the baby mama's thing that that came up that that we never got any clarity on but was yeah. odd and awkward of a story and then you 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 uh, think about what's the culture that's that seems to be trying to be uh laid out for the team and it's just an odd thing it's like man i don't really care if deandre hopkins has 20 baby mamas because yeah, if you can catch touchdowns on a sunday we can let it slide right, you know? yeah because <laughs> yeah, it concerns me none you know and and if it and it hasn't taken him out of the game like if the drama is not taking him away from the field or i don't even want to call it drama i don't even want to characterize it as that because i have no idea what his life's like but man the guy performs he shows up he, he, okay, he can't practice uh, three or four days out of the week, but he shows up on Sunday. You know, I, I've never heard of, you know, uh, of, hey, he, you know, he doesn't practice, but he does perform on Sunday, and that being a problem. Like I thought in yeah. the NFL, you know, that that's money. So it's it's it, it it is an odd thing, and I don't I don't know if Cal views the comments from Bill Belichick as as an indictment or as something that he kind of just already knew and accepted. I think definitely his father would have because he was infatuated by the Patriots. Whether he will or not is a different matter. I also thought the the Josh McCowan signing on a two-year deal and then how he sort of talked glowingly about Easterby, that kind of made me feel a bit uneasy. Now, look, everybody talks highly of Josh McCowan about he's going to be a great coach if he wants to be. And maybe that maybe it's just a two-year play deal so they've got him next year to try and take him on the coaching staff if the next, you know, coaching staff want to do that and I don't see why you wouldn't even as a quality control guy or a you know or a, an assistant quarterbacks coach for a year or whatever it might be but I thought that was odd and it kind of just made me feel a bit uneasy again about Easter being his influence in this building yeah I, the 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 entire thing is is just bizarre but with Josh McCown I I, I like the idea of having Josh McCown around to be quite honest with you, but what it symbolizes, I think, is what is more concerning. And just to go back to your point, he did, he didn't just speak glowingly of Jack Easterby. He spoke like Jack Easterby. Like my takeaway, and I was on that call too. My takeaway from the Josh McCown press conference is this is Jack Easterby with the, with the football credentials, <laughs> you know, like if, if Jack Easterby either played or coached football, yeah. this would be Jack Easterby. That was, I mean, he sound like him. Um, he used words. There are certain buzzwords uh, for people that are kind of of this ilk that you're hearing. You're like, Oh yeah, that that's a certain type of person and personality um, when they use words like serve and discernment, you know, uh, these are these are words that I've because I mean I've I've been in these places I I know what the what the Southern Baptist sounds like you know and and yeah. and this this is what it is man and so I'm like hey you know again no judgment here but it is it's saying something about what they want the tone to be you know go back to Amy Pausick she didn't exactly sound like that you know the way she moved and thought. And what her energy was like was a, seemed a little bit different to, to be in conflict, let's just say. And, and so I'm just like, hey, man, this this seems to be a, a theme here 
And again, if, if it's its own singular thing, that's, that's one thing, you know, uh, but to let it spill over into the football is concerning and, and makes you wonder a little bit of, Hey, are, are, is everybody's head in the right, in the right space right now? You know? Yeah, I think so. And before we, before we finish up, Brandon, you got any picks for head coach or GM? Yeah, so <laughs> my pick for a head coach is not looking so good anymore. So I almost don't want to. Uh, you know, I could, I guess, I could easily switch it since no one's heard it before. But I was on the Byron Leftwich bandwagon for a little while. Yep. And and I'm I'm being talked off of it a little bit, or you know, I'm off that ledge a little bit. So you know, I'm open. I I like Eric Bieniemy. I I don't know how much of that is you know liking Andy Reid. Yeah. You know. So. So like, therefore, I like Eric Bieniemy because I like Andy Reid or, hey, I like the way he talks. You know, that's some of that Jack used to be Josh McCown stuff. You know, I don't know how much I'm falling for something yeah. that doesn't really have to do with anything. You know, if I'm distracted a little bit. Um, so so I, I'm there. Um, I, I would personally love Lincoln Riley. I just don't think that it's a possibility. I don't think he would leave Oklahoma from all accounts. He loves it there. So, uh, so I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly what the direction is going to be. I know I, I'm intrigued by the people that think they should go with a defensive-minded coach, you know, given that they already have a franchise quarterback who I think has been underdeveloped by who he's been coached by so far. I feel like you got to get somebody – like, obviously, if you bring a defensive coach, you got to bring in a hell of an offensive coordinator to work with Deshaun Watson in this offense, which is still, at this point, the gem of the, of the, of the roster of the team. So, uh, I mean, there are a number of ways that they can go with this. And I think a lot of it has to do with the GM. I'm a lot less. I have far fewer GM candidates because to me, it's just harder to predict what a good who is going to be a good GM in this league as it is maybe to say a coach. You know, you can look at coaching trees and coaching tendencies and, and and things like that and try to and try to glean who might be good. You know, Eric B. Enemy, Andy Reid. But at the same time. So was Matt Nagy, and I don't like how yeah. that's working out for the Chicago Bears. So, I mean, is is Eric Bieniemy more like Andy Reid, or is he more like Matt Nagy? <laughs> you know, I, I would love to know the answer to that, but I wish I could know the answer to it before I made him the 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 head coach of a franchise. Um, but but you can't. So, um, I mean, I, I'm more just interested in observing and watching and seeing how it plays out. Uh, as opposed to like pretending like I've got the answers because I don't. Um, but it's an inter- it's an interesting time and it's a good it's a good time. I I think it's a good time to start fresh and to get fresh ideas. But it's so critical that they nail it, you know, that they get it right, you know. Oh yeah, I mean, you, they just can't. I keep I keep having this sort of thought that they'll they'll mess it up and they'll change after a year. That's what I keep, I keep th- thinking. I don't know why I've thought that for the last few weeks now. Um, They'll bring somebody in, and they'll just in the in the the GM will sack them, and they'll take somebody new in. I, I don't know. I just had that thought, but I, I hope it, hope it's not right. I think the defensive one's interesting. I think it's a good point you made because the the offensive mind that would come in with a defensive head coach would have to almost supersede them in terms of football knowledge and experience. And you know, Vic Fangio made a great career out of just going around and being the best, you know, the best defensive coordinator. And Wade Phillips did it a bit as well, you know, and racked at it sometimes so if it's that kind of deal you can uh you can do then fine but yeah i think it's so much hinges on it and you just 
hope for everyone's sake that they get it right. Um, but uh, Brandon Scott, thank you very much for your time. I think it's a record length of podcast, but one hell of a conversation about a football team of uh, two guys talking across the pond about a team that's in a bit of a sorry mess. But I think talking it over uh, with you today definitely helps, and I hope it helps everybody listening just make a bit more sense of uh, this funny old season in 2020. Man, I enjoyed it so much. I didn't even realize how long it was. Yeah. So I appreciate right. you for having me, man. Yeah, thanks, man. And I'll have you on again soon. But uh, that's Brandon Scott uh, from Radio 610, radio.com, and the host of the B Block podcast. We'll be back next week, hopefully, to talk about a Texas win against New England in the landscape of this season. It wouldn't seem likely, uh, but hopefully, we'll be have some positive news to talk about before the end of the season. And we're winding up for that head coach search as well. You can check us out on podcasttexans.com and add at Podcast Texans on Twitter. Thanks again.